about a month and a half ago when I was taking the class for the tabernacle, the pastor said, hey, I might need you to preach for me on May 2nd. And he said, hey, why don't you say something about the class? And I thought, well, I'll certainly pray about it. And uh, it seems like that's what the Lord kind of burdened me to talk about. Now, usually what happens when I speak is I, you know, when I used to travel in the summers, you spoke maybe three times a week and you kind of got into a groove. I think Brother Klaus would understand that. Not that it's ever easy. We always need to be in the spirit. Not that it's ever um, just second rate and you just kind of get used to it. No, I think you're always still kind of apprehensive. You want the spirit of God to work through you. You want things to be right. But it is different when you don't do it for a while. So I, I you know, when God asks me and gives me the opportunity, it's, it's usually every couple months or something. And I get quite nervous, you know. And so what I tend to do is, I probably have like a, and I just do this anyways, I have a thousand points, and I know when you're, you know, you keep trying to learn those lessons over, you're supposed to have just three, and you know, the best preachers, they expound and just really kind of have one main theme, and I haven't preached in a while, so I tend to want to say everything I learned in the last three months, and so, but the other thing I'm trying to say is, I, I love making eye contact, I love you guys, love uh, connecting with you, but I, what I tend to do is I tend to run real fast past my outline, and I'm blowing out little nuggets that I really wanted to wait for later. So if you see me looking down more than usual, please don't be offended. I'm just really trying to, and I'm going to try to look up at you and speak from the heart and things, but I just really want to kind of say a few things. Um, so what I want you to do, please, is turn with me. We'll pray in just a moment, but please turn with me to Exodus chapter 25. And uh, we're just going to read 1 through 9 and then eventually 10 through 16. But let's look at Exodus chapter 25 as you're going there. And while you're turning there, I want to give you two reasons why I'm burdened to talk about this topic. I wish when I was younger that I would have taken more seriously a study in the tabernacle. I've been saved for about 40, 41 years now. And of course, I studied it in Bible college to a point. I got to say, not that much that I remember. I'm sure we touched on it. They probably expected us to do more of our own personal reading. I remember maybe looking at some books uh, when some friends and I went to Oak Creek Baptist with Pastor Brown. I know that David Cloud was selling some books on the tabernacle. I picked those up. Sadly, I probably didn't read all the way through it, but one of my burdens is after taking this class, and I could tell even while I was taking it, this is something that has so enhanced and increased my understanding of who God really is. When you look at the tabernacle, Jesus is all through it. Jesus is that tabernacle. And I want to encourage you, not just by listening this morning, I want to encourage you, if you want to ask what books we used, a uh, pastor may bring that class again sometime, but he's going to do some different classes, I think, in fall. But whoever teaches it, him or somebody else, I want to put a plug in for please take the class. It is excellent. And it has so increased my relationship, my understanding. When I look at God, okay, when I look at why God specifically chose the things he did. And you understand that our God is extremely detail-orientated. I mean, he's meticulous. Nothing goes to waste. He doesn't go into all these details just because he doesn't have anything else to do or that he wants to make our lives more complicated. When you look at everything from the nail, and let me stop right there for a second. Yes, I remember in Bible college being warned, you need to be careful that you don't find a type in the Old Testament, that everything in the Old Testament has something in the New well, this one does. This one, you can go full uh, bang with it, okay? This one really does have so much in it. Whether you're talking about the nails, the ropes, the white linen, the porpoise uh, covering, all these things, 
you get to know something about your Savior even a little better. Please listen, but also, most importantly, I'll show you books to read. I mean, Dehan's book was probably the best. Great insights of why God took such care with Moses and telling him how to build this thing. Because it just says a number of things. We're going to work quickly through most of it and kind of get to the end there uh, because I want to focus on what I wrote my paper on, which were the things that he put in there, and hopefully we'll get there because there's so much uh, to see in this tabernacle. But um, for just a moment, let's just read the first couple of verses here. Exodus 25, and we'll stop at 9 just for the moment. Exodus 25 says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering. Of every man that giveth it willingly with his heart, ye shall take my offering. And this is the offering which ye shall take of them, gold and silver and brass, and blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen and goat's hair, ram skins dyed red, badger skins, and let me just stop right there. We believe those are actually porpoises, porpoise skin. Okay, they were waterproof, obviously porpoises. Uh, spent a lot of time in the water, so God made their skin to repel water. So we just believe that's, and that's fine. No problem there, just a commentator decided, you know, that he thought maybe it was actually a badger. And a shatim wood, oil for the light, spices for anointing oil, and for sweet incense, onyx stones, and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. What is that referring to? The priest, the high priest would wear the 12 stones representing the 12 tribes, tribes of Israel, and he would wear that on, in a sense, his uniform. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And there's the key word, dwell. We'll touch on that later, but that I may dwell. This is God speaking, that I may dwell with them. According to all that I show thee, after the pattern of what? The tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. So what I want you to think about this morning, when is the last time you've ever meditated on that wonderful truth of God? That God literally wants to dwell with you. And more miraculously, he wants to dwell within you. That, that is amazing. The God of the universe, that God that created all the wonderful beauty we see, the God that loved us so much that he sent his son, which must have brought upon his holy heart and spirit such pain that we can't even fathom because of his infiniteness, the pain as he watched his own son. That same God wants to dwell among us. But not only that, he wants to dwell within us. So what does that produce? Ever since Adam and Eve sinned, there's been a tension in human nature, a tension with people. How does that type of God that is so good, so powerful, so loving, so holy, how does he want to live within me or exist with me who am a dirty, rotten, red-handed, rebel sinner? Selfish. Always thinking of me first. When you show me pictures, guess who I'm looking for first? <laughs> I want to see what I look like in the picture. Come on, folks, let's be honest. How's my hair? How's that look? Is the soup color? Is the tie right? We, we do that. We are by nature selfish. How does that God be able to dwell with us? How, how can that happen? Why would he want to live within me? I'm dirty. I am a dirty vessel. Now, I'm not talking about what I am in Christ now. I'm talking about what we bring to the table, right? Look what God brings to the table in this transaction, in this covenant, in this agreement. Look at the great things God brings. What do I bring to the table? 
somebody who's so offensive to God that he had to come up with this plan that would produce the greatest hurt that I think God ever felt in the universe. People would mock and scourge and pluck the beard. They would literally crucify a holy, righteous man. Christ is seen throughout all these things in the tabernacle. Quickly, what does it mean to dwell? It means to settle down. It means to rest. God wants to have an area that we meet with him that is peaceful, and we are secure in that. Only the Prince of Peace can do that. Just even recently, on the last couple of days last week, I cannot tell you the striving in my spirit, the, the temptations, probably because he was asking me to speak, but that happens a lot of times. You know, the devil wants to discourage anybody that stands up here. So that's why we want to pray for our pastors, right? Because it goes on all the time. We are in a battle every time we wake up throughout the day. And I, and I agree, sometimes, as the Bible says, the devil departs from us for a season. But, but a lot of times, we are going through such struggle, and you're like, Lord, did I do something? Is there something I need to confess? Lord, I, I don't have peace. I, the devil feels like he's just running a rip shot all over my soul. What, what's going on? But as you continue in prayer, what happens many times? The Prince of Peace gives you a peace that passes all understanding. You can't describe it. You can't try to tell someone, I did this and this automatically happened. Well, sometimes if it's a matter of obedience, yes. If there was something I wasn't obeying the Lord and I wasn't trusting, yes, certainly I've had that cleansing take place. And I said, wow, now I have that relationship stored. There was, there was this lack of peace between God and I, but when I confessed it, which means to say the same thing that God says about it, if God says something is wrong, it's homiligao, that's, that's saying the same thing, we need to say the same thing God says. If God says this isn't right, I need to agree with him. So sometimes we don't have peace because in, in my rebellion, I've said, God, I know your word says this, but I'm enjoying this. This is bringing me some type of pleasure, and please don't take it away. How foolish, but be honest, you do that too sometimes. It is in that God wants to come and say, trust me, you can't figure it out. It might be the devil beating up on you, but sometimes we have no clue. And this is the time where God says, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And the Prince of Peace comes, and somehow miraculously, my thoughts straighten out. It's like the sea where the waves were raging. All of a sudden now it's placid. No waves. No white caps. Beautiful. God wants to meet with us, dwell with us. He wants us to rest in him. We know that from Hebrews. He has that rest that he wants to enter. And we're going to see later, a lot of times we don't even get to the heart of the tabernacle and enter that rest. We remain in turmoil. We remain in self-will. We remain in, you know what, I know Jesus said that if any man will come after me. In other words, what Jesus was saying was, hey, I'm not going to make you be a disciple, but I'm going to so present this that, of course, this is the right way to go, but I'm not going to force your will as dictators do and are even doing it in our government, starting to, right? That's not like Jesus. Oh, I agree with law, and that's a whole other thing. We'll get into that, too. But Jesus is saying, you know, I want to present this to you, and, and if any man will, you, you can come and you can partake of these things. But because the Lord does not come down and force Mr. Larry to do right, 
He wants me to do that. He wants me to use my will, my volition. He wants me to make the choice to do that because that glorifies him and that shows faith. He wants me to choose that. He's not going to force it on me. He wants me to come to him and dwell and enter that place. But I keep saying, no, no, Lord, this is, I don't want to give this up yet. I know people said this was wrong. In fact, you even sent a brother, a good Christian spiritual brother, that was exhorting me, he was encouraging me in the word of God to say, hey, stop this brother or maybe start doing this. And I said, I know this isn't right, but I'm just enjoying this right now. It's really not that bad. That's why we don't have peace sometimes. We want to go deep into the tabernacle and reach the heart of it. And by the way, did he do it just for us? No. This tabernacle he made for his name, and he was establishing himself in Israel. Israel was going to be a peculiar people, just like we should be as Christians. To my neighbors, I hope my wife and I and children are somewhat peculiar. And let's, what does that word mean? No, it doesn't mean like, man, those are a bunch of weirdos over there. I'd never want to receive a track from them. No, that's not what it means. But they, but they should look at us and say, eh, something different. Yeah, they're kind of having fun with their kids. Uh, don't look at how messy the backyard is, though. Not a great testimony. Sorry, we just have bikes galore and all the kids' stuff in the back. But outside of that, you know what's interesting? When I had to miss church uh, about a month, month and a half ago, that big snowstorm, um, my car, I was, had all full intent in coming. It was that Sunday where there was only a couple people in church because the roads were that bad. And I took my van, and I'm like, you know, I really want to go. Should, I mean, maybe we could walk. No, I think I'll make it because my van's a little bit higher than typical cars. Sure enough, all I did was get out right into the middle of the road, and it stuck. I couldn't go anywhere. Pastor was offering, hey, I'll come over and help you guys, and um, you can use my pickup. So my kids were able to come, but my wife and I had to stay back. You know why? It's illegal to leave your van in the middle of the road, <laughs> okay? You, you can't just say, hey, I'm going to go to church, so about two hours I'll come back and try to dig that out, okay? We couldn't do that. I couldn't do that in conscience. I just, it wasn't the right thing to do. Because my car literally stuck right outside our driveway on a, on a street, on 2nd Street, right where I live a few blocks away. And so what I find interesting is while I'm trying to dig this car out, my wife and I were just starting some guy I have never met, three, four houses across on the other street, comes over and he says, hey, I see that you're kind of struggling there. Would you like to use my snowblower? Now, we had a small one. I don't know that it would have moved that heavy snow, so my wife and I were actually going to dig it out manually with, with shovels while the kids are at church. And he says, you know, I, I, he says, I, I, if you're, you're welcome to use the snowblower if you want. He says, you know, you guys got to get to church. I, I've never talked to the guy. And this isn't about how great our family is. All the point I'm trying to make is people are watching. I never talked to the guy in my life. Yet, in the position of his home, I bet God sovereignly placed him there. What did he notice every Thursday and every Sunday? What did he notice? That our car was filling up with about 11 people usually, or sometimes I take the blue car and the other 10 or however it works out, would leave at that certain time. And I suspect they also saw my kids and by the way, let me put in a plug for this. I know I get in trouble. It's so sad fundamentalism has changed so much. But I think they also see a difference in how my kids dress. Oh, Larry, don't say that. You can't, you can't go there anymore. You're a legalist. Oh, I hate that so much, folks. I, I, I have come. 
I know what legalism is. We're not going to get into that right now. There really is a legalism in the scriptures. And yes, I understand you can have a legalistic spirit. But folks, I can't tell you how many times we've been in the park and people have just come up to us. Why? The only thing they know about us is how we look. And they say, hey, are you a Christian? Why do they say that? And yes, sometimes that's Christians, but we've had other people respond. And just, I've had people like that guy that wasn't even a Christian. He had nothing to do with church, but he still saw and said, hey, you got to get there. He thought he was helping me get my kids there. Well, I told him the kids are already there, but he still was a great help to me. I didn't have to, but I paid him. I think it's the right thing to do. He wouldn't take the money, but I still forced it on him because I want to say, hey, you know what? You were so kind to me. And, of course, we work on inviting all of our neighbors and things like that, but I don't know that he'll ever come. But what's my point? They're watching. They're watching us. So, if God wants to dwell with us and he wants to dwell in us, which is a huge spiritual blessing, first of all, then, what is this tabernacle? What is God doing here? The tabernacle was a movable, that's the key word, tent of meeting that God commanded Moses to build. And by the way, notice this, the pattern was set by God. Sorry for that blowing. I don't know if I need to move this down anymore. Notice that it was not Moses' idea. Notice that it wasn't according to what Moses thought was best of what was going to work in this situation. The pattern was set by God himself. When Moses went up to the mount, as you know, you remember he went up and and uh, received the Ten Commandments, came back down, and he smashed those first set of tablets. Why did he do that? I'm not saying God told him to do that. He, he was wrathful, but I'll say this. I think he had some righteous indignation going on. He had come down, and what did he see? He saw these people who he loved, these people who he chose as a peculiar nation, and said, you know what, I'm going to favor this particular group of people. And within days of leadership being gone, wow, we need pastors, right? I mean, boy, do we need pastors. With leadership gone, what happened? And actually, I take that back. Moses may have been the main leader, but there were leaders there. But they all got sucked into the idolatry. The Bible says it had the sounds of war. That's interesting. Does that sound, how would we sound today with the heavy metal groups? I don't know. Maybe, maybe it was the boom, 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 banging on the drums and really loud and real raucous. And he said, hey, it sounds like there's war. And I, I, Joshua said that, and of course, Moses said, no, it's not. That's, that's not what they're doing. They were worshiping, committing uh, fornication. They were doing a number of things that were dishonoring, displeasing to God. And so he broke those tablets. But when he went back up again, look at how merciful God is. God wanted to wipe those people out. I'm so glad that God indwells me because maybe you can relate to this, but on my job or in various places, there have been times I've wanted to call fire down from heaven. My wife's, I, I think my wife would agree I need to watch that video again on anger. I think it was Brother Clarence Sexton. We've watched it here a couple of years ago. I struggle with that. You know why? Because I love myself. And when somebody crosses me, hey, who do you think you are? Why? Why? You know, we, we love ourselves so much. Somebody says the smallest thing to us, and we just get so bent out of shape. What's, you have no right to say this to me. What do you, you, you should be honoring me. Don't drive like I do. Man, in Milwaukee, I run into so many things that I could just, oh, God, get them. Look what they did. They turned right in front of me. Look what they did. And this is really sad because it's, it's so impatient of us as drivers. But when the light turns, i got to be honest with you, um, I love technology, right? I mean, most of us do, but I, I got to say, 
when there's someone in front of me and I see that their head's down and their finger's doing this, and they're not moving when the light changes, I got to get sanctified again. I got to get it in the spirit because I get really upset. And, and I'm like, go, you know, move. If you would have had your head up like I did or other people, you would have seen the light changed and you go. But, but they don't. So, I, yes, I have honked the horn a few times. <laughs> and then what my favorite is, once they realize that they didn't get moving, they floor and they go really fast. And, they go, and I'm like, no, you didn't have to go that fast. I was just asking you to move. You don't need to go into outer space. Just, just, just move a little bit so I can move with you. Back to the tabernacle. The pattern was set by God. What was he doing there? The whole tabernacle from, we're going to work very quickly from the outside to the inside, but what was God doing in that, giving him exact the length, the width, the materials, even the colors? Red and blue and white, the porpoise skin. If you want to call it badgers, that's fine with me. I love my King James and nobody's taken that from me. But let's understand also that it is a translation, okay? And no translation is perfect. I'm sorry, I do believe God preserved his word and I am a King James guy. I believe the Greek text behind it is extremely important. That's me, you know kind of where I stand on that. But I don't worship a version either. I worship God. That's what we're supposed to do. What God was doing through the outside to the linen to everything, he was laying out his terms for approaching God. You know what I'm saying? He was laying out his terms for how to approach God. God was meticulous again. Everything was perfectly detailed. Nothing wasted. We can't come casually to God. We can't come to God on our own terms. And folks, if you ever involve yourself, and please do involve yourself with trying to win others, but remember to have the right emphasis. The Bible says the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. I'm glad that we try to get people right away, get out there and start doing stuff. But I like, I think the Holy Spirit puts, puts certain things in the scriptures in order for a reason. We always refer to that verse of sowing. Could be, great. But it says the fruit of the righteous is what? It's a tree of life. We might gain more people visiting. We might gain more people getting saved and being better soul winners if we realized, in a sense, it's better to be than to do. Oh, what'd you say, Larry? Oh, you're not supposed to do things. That's not what I said. They're both excellent. But if we could understand the whole reason of the tabernacle is that God wanted to dwell with his people, we need to spend time dwelling with God. And as you spend that time in your personal devotions, as you memorize scripture, as you faithfully come to the services here, as the doors are opened, of course, unless you're sick. I told you that story. It's, it's worth repeating again. Look, I'm thankful for people that say, you know, bless God, nothing's going to keep me out of church. Can I just say, if you have a communicable disease and you're sick, I don't think God's going to hold that against you. In fact... I prefer, as Chuck Cofty, who was a uh, colonel in the Marines and then became a preacher, he said, wisdom is the better part of valor. So I'm glad you have courage, and I'm glad you have strength. And even though, you're not, and by the way, if you just have a little bit of headache or you got a little hangnail, no, that shouldn't keep you out of church. But if you have something that will infect others and bother others, maybe get them sick, I do not see in the scriptures where God says, no, you still need to go. 
You still, need, you still need to be there. Listen, now we have no excuses because now we have streaming. <laughs> and it's not that we don't want to see you. And it's not that I don't want to be here when I'm sick. I want to be here when I'm sick. But I'm telling you, I think it's the right thing to do. We need to be careful, especially these days. Let's love our brothers and sisters enough to say, you know what? I'm afraid I've got something that I caught. It's something, it's a virus. It might even be a bacterial infection that is in my lungs, like when people get, not asthma, but they get other infections. Sometimes it's virus, sometimes bacteria. But if you cough, you can still spread that. Love people. One of the ways we show that it's by maybe getting better and staying home. And then we can come back. Stronger. Before we go into the tabernacle, I want you to picture in your mind where it's located. The tabernacle was located in the very center of all of the 12 tribes of Israel. If you can picture with me a compass rose, and you know what that is, north, south, west, east, and actually a compass rose goes northwest, southeast, it has the extra ones, but for just now, if you can picture the tabernacle as a rectangle, north, south, east, west, the entrance is on the east, there were three tribes in each one of those compass roses. But guess what? Where was the tabernacle located? Right dead center. What's the reason for that? Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. I know contextually that's Israel. I don't have a problem when nations like ours claim that verse, though if you read the rest, it really seems to be talking about, you know, his chosen people. But the whole point is, is that he did this for a specific purpose. The tabernacle, or God, was to always be the center focus of their culture. It was always supposed to be the center focus of their life. So all the tents were pointed in this compass rose, but they were not pointed away to watch the sunrise. Okay? They were not pointed in such a way as to look at the beautiful mountains maybe in back. All of the tents, when they got up in the morning, they were facing what? They were facing the tabernacle. And I think that's interesting because God wants to be the center of our life. Do you think there's some things you and I can do to make sure when we get up, we're pointed in the right direction? Can you think of someone in the Old Testament that pitched his tent in a different way and how it affected his life? We know that Lot pitched his tent, what? Towards a wicked city, Sodom, a very wicked city. I'm not at this time saying everybody's going to have the devotions at 7 in the morning. I'm, I don't want to get into that right now, but I think morning and night is a great time to do But that's not my point. I don't want to get into that right now. The main focus is, do you have things set up in your life that point you so that when you get up or you're going about your day, you're confronted with God, the tabernacle, right in front of you. But many times we have other things so that when we're ready to get up, we're not making the choice to serve God. We're not making the choice to worship God or spend time with God. We've got our latest toy we bought, maybe sitting right under a pillow, under a bed or somewhere, and now that's taking our heart away. It's not that it's wrong. You're not hearing me say any of these things are wrong. They all have their place, but you and I have an idol-making heart. You and I have something that we love to worship, and we saw that even with Moses. When Moses left and Joshua, what happened? Uh Uh-oh, we're kind of losing our faith now. we got to have something visual that we can look at. Okay? I know what they all said. I know what God just did for us. I know God set us free from the Egyptians, but so let's take all of our gold. And and as was it Aaron that said, hey, all of a sudden this calf just popped out. (laughs) Hey, I thought I was a rationalizer. Wow. He was really rationalizing, okay? Because I'm sorry. I think they had something to do with the formula of that. 
But my point is, now, what were they going to have there? And of course, this is before the tabernacle. But now when they woke up, they were going to see this golden calf. They were going to be looking straight into their idol. And all I'm saying, folks, in love is to encourage you, let's set our day so that when we wake up, just like the Israelites, that they were to see God was the focus. Let's try to do that ourselves. Let's put God and give him his rightful place. Why use a tabernacle instead of a temple? Well, at that time, the Israelites were nomadic people. They were on the move. Remember our verse? Speaking to the children of Israel that they may go forward. That was back in Exodus 14. God had set them free. And he says, you know what? Just make sure you go forward. Take the next step of faith, whatever that is. Not here to talk about that right now, but whatever your next step is, take that next step. That's what they were going to be doing for like 400 or more years. And God loved them so much that while he was leading them out of the land of Egypt, he wanted to dwell with them. He wanted to so meet with them. He loved those people like he loves us so much that he wanted to make it so clear that I'm making a way for you to come to me. Yes, it's narrow. Yes, it's specific. But understand, I'm a holy God. And we don't get to determine how we're going to come. Or we don't get to determine, you know, I don't feel like doing it that way. You know, you say, Lord, that it has to be an unblemished lamb. You know, how about if I just give you a dirty pigeon? Okay? And and, and there's times when the poor can't do everything. I I understand that, but you see my point. Sometimes we want to give God something that's way below. And we need to give God our best. Our last couple of verses focus on what many think is the most important piece of furniture, the Ark of the Covenant. There were seven pieces of furniture in the tabernacle. One of the most important ones was the Ark of the Covenant. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read these verses. The very first one that's mentioned, right after he says, I'm going to show you how to do this, he says, And they shall make an ark of shittim wood. Two cubits and a half shall be the length, and a cubit and a half in the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold. And then it says later on um, about, um, Thou shalt put into the ark, what? The testimony which I shall give thee. But let's move on. We'll get to that in a moment. Where was this located? The Ark of the Covenant, which held three specific objects, what I'm calling the heart of the tabernacle, okay, was located deep into the Holy of Holies. And, we're, and like I said, we're still going to quickly work through all the places in just a minute. But listen, this was a very special place. There was, of course, the fence. There was then, as you work through some things, which I'll get to very quickly in a second, you got into the actual holy place. Once you got into the holy place, okay, there was, of course, the candlestick, the showbread, there was the incense burning, but there was one more place to go. And that was blocked by a veil. And only once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest was allowed to go in. Why? Because that was the very presence, the very heart of God. During the day, it was a cloudy pillar. During the night, it was a pillar of fire. And yes, on top of the ark, which we're not talking about so much now, was the actual mercy seat, okay, which was represented like the throne of God. But inside that, that heart there, that when, when they went through only once a year, he could actually go in. And by the way, he couldn't even look at the things that were in there. When God says something's holy, he means it. We need to follow and do what he says. We have 
as Christians access now into that very throne room of God where that ark exists. Remember, that was just a foreshadow. The neat thing is, is that all of us now, when that high priest, he had a privilege of only going into that very presence of God, what, once a year. Now in the New Testament, which is verified in Hebrews like chapter 9 through 13, now we can go into God's presence 365, 24-7, and have access to a Heavenly Father that loves us, and he wants, us to, he wants to give us grace in time of need. That's the heart. We have that privilege. We are literally in Christ the high priest could only do that once a year. We had that any time. Tabernacle was a foreshadow of what was to come. What was coming? Right after that was the temple that Solomon was going to build. What else was that? Christ literally coming in the flesh. Christ incarnate. God's internal dwelling or presence within us and eventually a future home in heaven. But back to the physical ark. I believe that not only is the heart of the tabernacle the ark, but I believe it reveals the heart of God himself. As we see the specific objects he placed within the ark and his purposes for each. Combining uh, the overarching motive of God, why did he do all this? Why did he put all these things in there? I think it's this. God's desire for all mankind is seen in his heart and it is seen in the ark. What is it? A oneness and fellowship with himself that Jesus and the Holy Spirit have enjoyed for eternity past, for eternity future, the eternal right now eternity, as well as a unity between believers who belong to the one body of Christ. Do you know that God's main desire has never changed? Yes, we can show you from scriptures that it's for his glory. God always wants to glorify himself. He has a right to do that. He is so infinitely above his creation. But his heart of love is always for you. It's always that you might dwell with him. It's always that you would be right with him. It's always that you would enjoy God so desires that you would be able to come into that heart area, that area that, again, they only used to become once a year, but you can come anytime. The question is, do you do that? This is not about salvation. That, that comes when you come by faith to the door of the tabernacle. That's salvation. What I'm talking about is do you go all the way through there? Do you reach the part where God wants you to reach? Where you're at rest with God? That you have power of God? You have peace with God? You're walking in the light? Everything, you know, not perfect, but you're keeping short accounts with God? You know that's how you walk in the light. Nobody walks perfectly but as you keep short accounts with God, as, as, if, as if we sin, we fall. Lord, forgive me for this motive. Forgive me for this attitude. Lord, I, I, I didn't respond right to that guy in the car in front of me. When you take care of that immediately, that's you being sensitive to God and walking in the light. So as we move very quickly from the outside of the court, right at the linen fence, I want you to be thinking about something. Where are you standing right now? In your life. What do you mean by that? So let's move very quickly to the heart. Outside the tabernacle was a white linen fence. In other words, whether you're Jewish and you're not saved, because remember, everyone still had to be saved the same way. Just because you were one of those tribe members, that doesn't mean automatically that you had a personal relationship with God. Everybody has to come to God through what? believing, trusting. Abraham believed God in what? It was accounted for righteousness. 
So everybody has to do that. Outside of the tabernacle represents the Gentiles, the unsaved Jews, the world. Interestingly, before you even come to the door of the tabernacle, which, by the way, opened up to the east, and interestingly, do you know what one of the tribes were that was right next to the east door? The lion of the tribe of who? Judah. We know that that's where Jesus came from. That was right at the opening. You think that was put there on purpose? Yes. That's the type of God we serve. He has a reason for everything. Right by the door. So before you even get to the door of faith is what I call it, before you even enter the tabernacle, before you're even saved, the first thing you see is the white linen. What does that represent to me and to others, other Bible students? That's the holiness of God. That's, that's the law of God. And there's really only one other thing you see. It's the porpoise skin on top of the tabernacle, which will be sticking up a little bit above the white linen fence. What does that represent? I believe it represents the unattractive, actual physical incarnation of Christ. What's my point? Before people get saved, they don't see any of the beauties of Christ. They don't see any of the gold or beauties of the tabernacle. All people are confronted with is, here is this white linen. Okay, well, okay, that's, okay, the pureness of God, the holiness of God, the law of God, which, by the way, the Bible says the law is good. And just a little reminder, Jesus Christ came to fulfill the law, not abolish it. Okay, whole nother subject, but you know what I'm saying? The law is good. It makes us see the holiness of God. But then the other thing is we look, we see this porpoise skin. It's dull. It's not colorful. It's unattractive. Well, guess what? Jesus was the same way. Isaiah 53, 2 through 3 basically says there was no beauty in him. Jesus Christ was not Hollywood. You know, these days you can't buy a car or anything without them trying to sell something else along with it to try to get your attention, you know what I'm saying? Jesus would have never fit any of that because he probably had a beard, looked like just a common Jewish person, and that was it. There was nothing comely. The Bible says there was no beauty about him that would make us desire him. Of course, the world is the complete opposite. We know how the world works. You're not going to get on TV. You're not going to be in the movies. You're not going to be, uh, all these things you could fill in there. We're not going to be able to do that unless what? Unless you're super attractive. And yet Jesus Christ was the most attractive man internally that has ever lived because of his attributes, because of his godliness. So when we're looking at the linen and, and looking at that, you're like, oh, that's why people say, you know, I don't want any part of religion. It's dull. It's, look at that. That ugly porpoise skin on there, that's all I see. Man, and by the way, it's a beautiful weather protector for the rest of the tabernacle, so even God had a purpose in his incarnation, which of course was to die for us, but even in his fleshly body. His purpose was not to come to earth and draw people to his flesh. Look at how great, okay, he was trying to point people, of course, to him, but also his heavenly Father. It, had, it serves a purpose, but if we just remain right there and we remain faithless, we will look at the tabernacle and say, you know what, all I see is the law of God, and by the way, I don't like how that makes me feel. I always think of O.J. Simpson when I think of conviction. It just comes to me. You know what happened there? I can remember being with uh, Pastor Doug Richards um, back then. He was our assistant at Greendale. And we were doing something that day. And I remember going to his house and turning on the TV. And there was that white Bronco cruising around L.A. And unbelievably to find out that that was O.J. in the white Bronco. Now maybe some of you disagree with me. 
Can we still be brothers and sisters? Okay, just understand why I'm bringing this up, okay? You might think he was innocent. I'm being honest with you, I don't think he was. That's my opinion. I'm not the judge, I wasn't there. I'm just saying what I think happened, okay? What always interested me was, as he was driving, and Al Collins, his friend, was driving this white Bronco, and the police are kind of not, it's not going fast, but they're basically following him all over. I remember Al Collins talking on the phone, and I remember basically O.J. saying, remember the old O.J. Remember, he was saying, hey, I want people to remember the old O.J. I'm sorry, that just begged the question in my mind, who's the new O.J.? A murderer? Somebody that was so wrathful, um, boy, there's so much to that, we'll just let that go for now, but somebody that was so angry because I think he saw, he had no idea that that other gentleman was simply returning glasses or something, he was just there, show, he was in the wrong place, wrong time, not in God's timing, wrong, but from a human perspective, he was in the wrong place, all he was doing was returning some glasses I think she'd left. OJ was so upset. And lust can do this, by the way. And again, I don't want to get into all the details of the relationship, and I, I know some things because I've kind of studied it, but leaving that all aside, when we don't have a lust or a desire fulfilled, or we're envious, we think we're going to lose something. That's what jealousy is. It's, it's a loss. We think, oh, man, I, I like that lady. Hey, there's another guy going over there. If we're not careful, we can get so wrathful. And that's why the Bible says if you hate someone in your heart, it's like murder, because that's always the first step right? Before we actually physically do something. I believe that's what was going on in OJ's heart. Well, here's my point. When I saw him uh, in, in court, and of course that was a big fiasco. That thing was on TV, what, for weeks? Was it maybe even a couple months? Now I'm kind of forgetting, but it was a very long time. And I saw OJ, and we were all watching when the verdict was going to come down. Let me tell you something, folks. I guarantee, because he didn't know how the jury was going to come down for him or not, that feeling he felt, I believe that was conviction. I believe he was like so scared. Why? Because he knew it's very possible that he might be going to jail for the rest of his life. My point, I can picture how he felt. Nobody likes to feel that. That's why people say, oh, the law of God. Well, of course, we don't just present the law of God. We also present the love of God. I understand that. But I think so many people, they see the white of the tabernacle and they say, wow, you know what? All I see is something I could never attain because, of course, religion is me trying to gain favor with God, right? I, I could never attain that. So I don't want any part of that. And look at that ugly porpoise skin. You know what? I bet everything within that tent is blah. Everything within those four walls is nothing. Nothing that my flesh desires, okay? It's nothing that I would desire, Hey, folks, do you realize that's the test of God? Are you going to believe God in his law? Are you going to believe what God said in his word? Are you going to have to say, nope, you've got to show me something good in that tabernacle. You have to show me something good in heaven. You have to show me something good first that my flesh is going to go, whoa, I really want to be a part of this. I'm saying in the flesh. God's saying, no, this is the test. Will you believe me at my word? I have all these promises, but right now all you can see is the white linen. All you can see is the law of God. All you can see is that ugly porpoise skin. I don't desire any of that, Lord. But also in the law of God are promises, right? And when I mean law, yes, I'm, I mean in the whole Bible. But we understand also the law in that case was His holiness, His 600 and some laws. If we don't by faith say, right now all I'm seeing is the ugly. 
I don't like the way I feel. When that guy preaches, I feel like there's something wrong. I feel like, wow, I'm just not good enough on my own. I don't want to feel bad about myself. Why would I go to that church? They actually have standards. They actually preach the word of God. And when Pastor Hoover preaches, you know, I kind of feel like, eh, I don't feel really good. I don't desire that. Who would desire that? That's the test. If you believe God, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Guess what? He didn't say, I'm going to take the cone and rub it in your face, and then you're going to just lick it automatically. He's telling you. And by the way, I'm going to use that not just for unbelievers. I'm going to use that for the Christian. If you're backslidden, you taste and see that the Lord is good. He is good. So when a person says, you know what, I know the white is nothing I really desire because I could never live up to that because I'm religious and I'm just trying to earn it. I could never, I don't want to hang out, I don't want to go under some tabernacle with that ugly porpoise skin. Who would want to do that? But when by faith we trust God, guess what? We come to the door. And we come to that door by faith and guess what? That's salvation. Because you said, I'm not going to go by my feelings. I'm not going to lean on my understanding. I am going to come to that door and trust that there are beautiful things, that God is really beautiful, and there's wonderful attributes. And God promised, yeah, we didn't promise me an easy life, but he promised that I would have an eternity to spend with him. And when you do that, you are coming to the door of the tabernacle now. You're ignoring, in a sense, the, the awfulness you felt, but that actually worked for good because now you're coming to the door realizing I'm going to believe what God says about me. And I'm going to come to that door, and by faith, you are now in the door. You're saved. Why? Because the first thing you notice when you walk in is the brazen altar. And that's where the sacrifice takes place. You see how God's leading us? You don't get to move this furniture around. You don't get to decide, I want to see the good stuff first, and then maybe I'll do what you want, God. No, no, we need to come as he prescribes. Now we're walking in the front door, and we see the bronze altar. This, of course, is where they slaughtered the animals that were without blemish. What was that doing? Was it forgiving sins? No, the Bible says it was atoning or covering our sins. Why? God was accepting the shed blood of animals because what that was doing was teaching the people that the wages of sin is death. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. There's no forgiveness. God is so holy that his holiness demands that there's judgment. And we don't like that part. Who does? But when you realize how good our God is, that now those animals that were being sacrificed, who are they pointing to? They were pointing to the ultimate sacrifice, our Lord and Savior Jesus. He shed his blood. He was perfect. He was the spotless lamb. He died for us. Now we get that, we realize, yes, Lord, that's what I'm having faith in. I could never earn favor with you, so I'm going to believe that you paid the price that I could never pay. Next, very quickly, you come to what? You come to the bronze laver. What is that? Well, basically, the bronze laver was, if you just think of a bowl, and, and in the case they showed as if there's two bowls and there's water, guess what the bronze laver is? The bronze laver is where you come, and the priest would come, and this was like a daily thing. They would come and wash hands, wash feet. Why would they do that? Well, I thought Christ already died for our sins. He did. Does he forgive you? He does. That was already taken at the bronze altar. Why do I have to come to this labor now? Do you know why? Because we daily sin against God. And folks, remember what I said. I want you to be pictured in your mind, honestly, uh, 
Lord, uh, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the life everlasting. Lord, where am I? Am I outside the tabernacle? Did I come to the door of faith? Do I recognize Christ died for my sins? Uh Uh-oh, here's the next step. Because I think most people just hang out in the salvation in the outer court. Before you get to the holy place, which is not even the holy of holies yet, you have to come to this laver. What is the laver doing? When you meet with God and you're willing to confess, Lord, I know I'm already saved, thank you for that, but I want to have a better relationship with you than just, hey, I'm in, I got my foot in the door of heaven, now I'm going to live like I want. No, God wants you to daily walk with him and enjoy his presence and his power and his peace and everything. Uh, you know, the Bible says that, what is the kingdom? What is this all about? He says it's righteousness, peace, and joy. In the Holy Ghost. That's how we're supposed to be living. But we never experienced that because why? We just got our foot in the door, but now we come to this labor. And many times, we don't spend time with God saying, God, search me. Something not right? Okay, God, I agree with you. That's not right. Guess what? We sin daily against God. We need to be at the labor daily. The priests could not even enter the tabernacle, because the actual, I call the tabernacle the whole thing, but actually the tabernacle is that small, smaller piece of rectangle tent that had all the coverings over the porpoise and other ram skins and various things to where the holy place is. Now, very quickly, we move into that actual, there's the tabernacle itself. And now that they've been cleansed by the blood, in that case just covered, looking for when Jesus Christ would die one day in the future, now they're Daily cleansed, they're cleansing by the labor, they're, they're confessing, Lord, even today, I think I had a wrong attitude or a wrong spirit. Now they're coming into the holy place. What's in the holy place? This is where I think it gets exciting to serve God. Because once you are cleansed, once you are saved, and remember the devil, if, if, if you're saved, he wants to still keep you in such a, a, a state of, I'm not even sure I'm saved. I kind of came to the door of the tabernacle, but I don't even know where to go from here. That's where the devil wants you. God wants you to progress. Why? Because after you've received Christ, now you're cleansed. You said, Lord, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive. The next step is he wants you to go in the tabernacle, and guess what's in there? There are three pieces of furniture. There is the lampstand. There is the showbread. And there's the incense. You know what I believe that represents? That's the Christian coming in and ready to serve God. Not at the heart yet, not at, the, not at that perfect place yet, but serving the Lord. That's what he wants from us, folks, not just to stay in the outer, outer court. He actually wants us to come into the tabernacle and just to make it really simple and really quick, there's so much more to say. Please take the class. The lampstand is the light of Christ. It represents his light. That, by the way, was the only light provided in the holy place. That's the only way they could do their work. God didn't expect them to do their work in the darkness. The lampstand provided the light. And oh, there's so many good and neat things about that, about the beaten oil and and the beaten gold and everything and how Christ was beaten. Oh, there's so much there, folks, of Christ and all these things. The other thing was the showbread. What was that? God wants to fellowship with you. When I was in Bible college, I had a friend, he'd say this almost every night. He says, brethren, shall we break bread? And he was just being funny. But I know what he meant. He wanted to go have dinner. Okay, that's, that's a fellowship. That's communion. He would you'd say that phrase. That's what God wants to do with us. He wants you to be in the light, but he also wants you to commune and understand that that bread not only is the feeding of your soul as you feed on God, he wants you to understand that's Christ, the bread of life. Jesus is the true sustainer of your life. 
it's interesting, my family's been getting a little more into um, uh, fasting, and uh, thanks to Susan Dake. Where is she? Yeah, thanks, Susan. Okay. And we're, we're trying to do that a little more. And I thought, you know, Lord, I'm so used to eating all the time. I don't want to do that. That's going to hurt. You know, it did at first. And then I realized God told me the most obvious thing. He said, Larry, you, you were right to take your vitamins. You, you have some, I have an infection that's just kind of chronic and a lot of things. So I, I've been helped by a lot of doctors. But the thing that the Lord really impressed upon me was, Larry, you're forgetting I'm the bread of life. Do you get what I'm saying? The reason why Jesus could go 40 days, I'm sure he had water, but the reason he could go 40 days without eating, and I'm not telling you to do that right now, but the reason he could do that is because Jesus was his, I mean the Father in that case was his bread. Jesus wants to be that to us. It's amazing what you can do in the spirit even though you don't have the natural strength. It's amazing when you are so focused. And by the way, that's what fasting ultimately is in the scriptures. It's not to lose weight. But by the way, there's great benefits. Isn't that like God, that he has a spiritual reason? But by the way, God is so loving and he's such a great designer. You also get certain benefits from doing what God asks you to do. Please go on the web and look at all the different things that happens to your body at 12 hours, 14 hours, 18 hours, 24 hours fasting. It's amazing how your body heals. But what was the main purpose of that? They were praying so long in prayer, spending so much time in prayer that they were going without eating, I believe. In other words, they were so seeking God that as they became weaker, that in a sense helped their spiritual strength. I think kind of like Paul says, when I'm weak, I'm strong. You know, when I'm strong, muscular, and have all the energy and all the, everything I want, it's interesting, I don't seem to seek God as much. But when God allows trials in my life or allows me to be weakened from the infection or something else, it's amazing how all of a sudden Mr. Larry starts seeking God a little more. How about you? You ever have that experience? When I have tons of money, tons of energy, oh, everything's going great. By the way, not hearing me say that isn't of God. God blesses. But always remember this. Every strength has an inherent weakness. I'm sorry. It's just I haven't seen it to be different. Every strength, God, everything about it, there seems to be something that you can get caught up in. And so I'm thankful for those, those times. I call life as a sine wave, and I won't get into all that right now, but when you're riding the crest on top of the wave, you know, hey, I'd rather be up there all the time. But God knows it isn't best for me to be up in the top all the time. Because what happens is I stop seeking the bread of life, Jesus, and I start seeking what? The natural bread again. Any of that stuff. So now we come up to the incense. What is the incense? I believe that that incense are the prayers of the saints. That's our prayers, and it's a sweet-smelling savor to our God. You see, so now that we're in that holy place, not the holy of holies, but we're in that holy place, this is where God is using us. We're praying. We're praying for others. That is God's way. We're interceding. I know a lot of times our prayers are, I need this, I want this, and he does tell us to do that. You're not hearing me say that we shouldn't. But folks, we want to go farther in our relationship with God that it's not just about asking Jesus for things. It's about getting the mind of Christ and looking at somebody else and saying, you know what, Lord? You gave me some discernment about that person, not so that I can go now and gossip about him. You gave me that discernment about that person so now I can pray for them. I can intercede. I believe that's what those sweet-smelling prayers are. So that God has given us that insight to help one another. And remember this phrase? Prayer is the nerve that moves the muscle of God's omnipotence. Prayer is the nerve that moves the muscle of God's omnipotence. God is strong. And he has chosen the way of prayer to release that. Finally, 
so much to say. Oh, man. Um, we come into the heart of the tabernacle. Why is that a big deal? Because it's where God wants us to be. Again, where are you at? Are you on the outside looking in and saying, I don't even want that? It's ugly. Nothing there for me. I want to have fun. I want to have, fulfill my lust. No, come to the door and get saved. Have the blood of Christ. Have the labor cleanse you. Go into the Holy of Holies and start praying for others, not just for ourselves. Enjoy the bread of life that Jesus says. Walk in the light of the lampstand. But are you ready now? Because that's where God wants you to be. Is in the heart of the tabernacle. What's in there? Well, this will reveal the heart of God himself. For this place, as I read earlier, represents God's desire for all mankind. God wants an intimate, secure, peaceful, loving, growing, whatever positive words you can think of. He wants that relationship with you. He wants you in the core, the heart of the tabernacle. The three things that were in there. First object mentioned was the testimony, the new stone tablets. That was the law. That's interesting. There's the law again, like the linen curtains. Why is that a big deal? Because the law is good, and God has chosen to use the law to show us that we cannot make it on our own, that we have sinned and we're not good enough to make it. So God has used this law to teach us. So not only do we see the goodness of God in making the tabernacle, we see the terribleness of God, that God is a God of judgment. And sometimes, folks, we forget that. God must judge sin or he ceases to be holy. So he has to provide a way, and he has provided a way. So the first thing we see in there is the law of God, because the law is good. It's his holiness. But guess what? That same law that produces conviction is also a schoolmaster. It teaches us. It's a pedagogue. It's like that teacher that brings us to some new truth. But most importantly, it's a schoolmaster to bring us not to just a truth. It's to bring us to a person, Jesus Christ, our Savior. The second object was that golden pot of manna. What is that? God always wants to be our bread from heaven. God always wants to feed us. God always wants to be our sustenance. You see, this is the heart of God. is because he loves people. He wants to save people. And he wants to take care of us forever. The third object was Aaron's rod that budded. And I'm skipping over a lot of stuff. And I know I've kept you long. We'll go fast. Why did Aaron's rod bud? Why did it? Why did Aaron's rod bud and have the almonds? Sadly, during this time of talking about the tabernacle, I'll just make it super simple. Some men decided, you know what? How come Moses, how come he's the leader? How come, how come he's the chosen one? Aren't we all priests before God? How come he gets it? You know what I'm saying? You know, that's called envy. We do it all the time, folks. doesn't matter whether it's in church or at our company we work or our families. How come I'm not the patriot? You know, I'm not this. I'm not that. You know, We envy. And these men were envying and to make a long story short, God had 12 rods, each rod representing each tribe of Israel. And Aaron's rod budded and even budded almonds. Why? Not only did many people leave their, lose their lives in the judgment of God as the earth opened up, but I believe the reason why that's in there, what's the heart of God? God is sovereign. And by the way, folks, he gets to choose where he places us. He gets to choose who's in charge. Sorry, I don't mean to make it sound like that. We don't have dictatorships here, but you know what I mean. 
I believe that God sovereignly chose Brother Klaus, right, in New York, right? That's, I, I believe he did that. I believe the pastor is the angel of the church. You say, why do you believe that? Because other people disagree. Well, there's certain attributes given to that angel or person that it does not fit an angel, it fits a person. I believe the pastor is just another vote, on the other hand. He's also just another servant. He's the under-shepherd. He's not Christ the shepherd. But folks, I think God takes authority very seriously. But that's for us. We only hurt ourselves when we say, you know what, Lord, that should have been me over there, not him. We become envious. I believe God said, I want you to notice which one's going to bud, and Aaron's is going to bud. Do you know why? Because I'm the one that chose Aaron to do that job. Folks, I, I think we go through that in small ways and large ways all throughout our life. We become envious of someone. How come they get to sing? How come they get to do that? How, how come, we would say a thousand things. How come I didn't get that? Or how come I didn't get to do that? Hey, you know what? We better go back to God. And there might be a reason that maybe a sin in our life that God's hindering or we're hindering God from using us. But leaving that aside, even when we're totally right with God, we have to remember we don't serve God because we're seeking something great for ourselves. As Barak did in Jeremiah. Seekest thou great things for them yourself? Seek them not. Interesting. Okay. We're supposed to be seeking God. And that's why I want you to be in the heart of the tabernacle because that is the goal of the Christian life. I want to be so close in God's presence that he can use me any way he wants. Now, there's nothing wrong with visions. I have a suspicion that men like Brother Klaus and Hoover and others probably knew that God was giving them a call and working on their lives. That's not what I'm talking about. That's a wonderful thing of God. But I'm saying many times all the other people that may not be in that position, they can look and say, God, you're unjust. I should have been there. Why can't you use me like that? How come I can't have that? How come I can't do that? But here's a real tough one for men, because men love respect and honor. How come I didn't get honored like that? We do that. And Miss Opal, I don't mean to keep looking at you as if you've got a problem with that. <laughs> I just have a tendency of looking that way. And we will close with this. You don't even need to turn there. What really matters to God? What was the whole point of the tabernacle? Christ. What is God desiring? He wants you to be so one with him. So one with him, like Jesus knew on the earth. You say, well, you have an example of that even in the New Testament? Well, sure, there's plenty. But yesterday I had the privilege of listening uh, to a preacher, and he helped me see something that I never saw. And we really will close with Luke 15. You don't even need to turn there. You say, well, really? So, so in other words, that matters a lot to God that we are absolutely in perfect harmony with him? Yeah, it does. Let me show you something. In Luke 15, that was the prodigal son. And you, of course, remember the story of the prodigal son. It basically involved the father and two sons. And the one son said, hey, would you basically apportion out my portion of the, uh, you know, the inheritance? So in other words, what did that prodigal son want? Things. Money, possessions. Why? He wanted to go party. We have that in our flesh. I jokingly call them Christian parties. <laughs> you know, we do it. I hope we do it for the Lord and we, we have a good time together. But he wanted to spend it. In other words, the only thing it seemed like he wanted out of that whole family relationship was that he wanted, hey, Dad, can I have what's going to be coming to me anyways? Can I have that 100000 right now? I know you didn't sell the house yet, and I know you've got all this cattle, but could, it really, can you give it to me? And by the way, what I understand from the Jewish tradition, it wasn't out of keeping. You could do that. 
But I still want you to notice, what was his focus? What did he want? The money, the possessions, the things, okay? Now watch this. He comes back. The older son, he was out probably working dutifully, doing whatever he was supposed to do, keeping God's, the, his father's commandments, working hard in the field, so he wasn't there. All of a sudden he comes back, and I can just picture that oldest son. He's so faithful, he's doing everything dad wants, and all of a sudden he comes back and he says, hey, he talks to one of the servants, what's going on here? This looks like a big commotion, a big party, there's a lot of things going on here. The servant said, hey, your brother, he came back. And the older son, I believe, notices a couple things. Dad has killed the fatted calf and given his son, the younger son, I'm just, I don't know if it's young, yeah, yeah, it is younger, the other son a ring. He notices that they're having this huge party and look at all the things that dad is acting like, oh, he's the greatest thing since sliced bread. He's, he's so important, which he is because his son has returned after eating the husks and realizing the world doesn't really satisfy. What do you think, can we, can we conjecture here, what do you think the oldest son felt like. I believe he was envious. I believe he said, you know what? And he even talked with his dad. I think it's interesting. We won't get into this now, but in 2 Corinthians, it shows you the list of sins. Paul said, I hope when I come back to the church that I don't see this, these things happening. And first we have envy, but you know what comes after we've been really envying? We get real angry with God because we believe, God, you've been unjust with us. You didn't give me what I think I should have got. Where do I see that? The oldest son comes back and says, hey, dad, well, let me, re- let me rewind a little bit. I believe because he was desiring and he was um, envying, I believe he became so angry, I bet it changed his countenance. You can tell when someone's angry, right? You can tell when someone's joyful. You can tell when someone's happy, but you can also tell when somebody's been really angry, kind of afraid to be around them. I believe the father saw that and said, hey, my, you know, basically my son, what's wrong? In other words, I don't understand. How come you're not rejoicing like I am? Your son, my son, your brother was dead. He was dead. He was partying with harlots. He spent all of his, everything, and he was eating what the pigs ate. And now he's back. Why isn't everybody excited? And the oldest said this, I've done everything you've asked me to do, and yet you never gave me the fatted calf. Where's my ring? Where's my party? That's kind of a pity party too, isn't it? But you guys are sharper than me, so you probably caught this your whole life, but I didn't. He said, son, and I'm paraphrasing, you always have me with you. I'm always with you. Did you see what I think God was saying there? Now, by the way, he also said, everything that I have is also yours too. But did you catch the first thing he said? He didn't say, hey, you can go have a fatted calf too, son. I don't care. You can have a gold ring. Do you know what the father said in that prodigal son story? Listen again. He said, my son, I've always been with you. Is that basically God telling us what God's really after? Do we need possessions? Yeah. But what are we supposed to be seeking? What's important to God? The relationship. And by the way, that oldest son, interestingly, he wasn't looking for that either. He was also looking, how come I didn't get this? How come I didn't get that? How come I didn't get that? And the father said, you've always had me. That makes my heart break. Because as a father, it is such a blessing to have kids when they love you. 
and honor you. And to have a kid reject you or to say, I don't really want anything to do with you or someday go off into sin, that's got to be one of the biggest heartbreaks. And I'm sure that broke the heart of the father when the other one said, hey, can you just give me the money? Dad, I'm ready to go out. But you know, the older son wasn't any better. He missed the whole point too. Why did God show us the tabernacle? Why did he show us the ark? Why did he throw those things in the ark and preserve them? Because he wanted to show the people that ultimately, of course I want you to serve me. Of course I want to bless you with some things so that you can serve me better and take care of your family and enjoy life. God gives us richly all things to enjoy. But the main thing is, I want you to love me. I want you to be in my presence. I want you to stop trusting in yourself and, and, and fully surrendering to me and coming into that place of rest and peace and security and having the power that you need in your life. And let's enjoy that beautiful relationship. I am your all. Seek ye first the kingdom, but the Bible says, seek the Lord. Seek me. Folks, where are you in this tabernacle thing? Where are you? Are you in the outside? Are you at the door? Are you, are you enjoying the, the uh, Christ shed his blood for you, but you're not even going to the labor to wash? Are you in the holies place? The holy, the holy, not the holiest, but the holy place? But where God wants you is inside, in his presence, constantly communing with him. So then... Better to be than to do. You're being, you're recognizing who you are in Christ. Now God has control to use you any way he sees fit. And that will produce the joy that you're looking for. I'm not going to have a, uh, you don't have to pray, sweetie. I'm just going to ask that we're going to pray, and then you're dismissed. If you want to talk to me or anyone else, that's great, but I'm not going to have people come forward. But I do want you to just say, hey, you know, if you want to talk with anybody, not just me, there's other godly people here that can help you, but I want you to go thinking, Lord, show me, where am I at in this tabernacle thing? Am I right where I need to be? Am I on the outside? Am I just in the door? Love God, the greatest commandment. He wants a personal relationship with you. That's first, always. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for the patience of these people. I know I've gone long, but they are just such good people that they're very patient. I ask, Lord, that you might continue to challenge all of us to enter the Holy of Holies, where they're positionally, but Lord, on a practical level, many times we don't even want to be in there because we're afraid you're going to take something from us. We're afraid you're going to cause us to suffer in some way. But Lord, help us to have faith, to trust you that this is where we all desire to be, is in the heart of the tabernacle because your heart is there, God. So help us, Lord, to just go as different people. Help us just to take one little thing I said, maybe just make us different. And Lord, bless this food to our bodies that we're about to receive. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much again for your kind attention. You are dismissed.